Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 today, uh, near the end of the, the chapter. Before we get there, though, can you recall a time in your life when you were sick and you're feeling this tension of, should I seek medical attention or should I tough it out on my own? And if you're a medical professional and you sought your own advice, that doesn't really count, right? So you, you're not a part of the illustration. But maybe you're like my great-grandmother, who her sole experience with the medical system was an encounter with a country doctor when she was a young girl who told her she should take an aspirin a day, she'd probably live longer. That was it. She gave birth to her kids at home. She never, not one time in her life, ever was in a hospital, ever. She lived to be 99. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, I hope there's not longevity in my family. I don't want to be here at 100, but maybe I will. <laughs> That's a long time. Um, and otherwise healthy. Like she, she went to sleep one night and she didn't wake up while well, she woke up the next morning in a different place. Um, and so if you're like her and you've had limited or no experience with the healthcare system, then you don't really count for my illustration either. Sorry. Maybe you're like me and you don't like going to the doctor. Uh, perhaps you prefer to, and I'm not a tough guy at all. If you know me, you know that's not true. I could never pretend to be a tough guy, right? But I don't like going to the doctor at all. And it's not that I dislike my doctor. I actually like him a lot. He's a great guy. My whole family, we really enjoy him. He's great with our kids. He's good to my wife. He's a great man, loves Jesus. So that's just an added bonus. But what I don't like is I don't like seeing him professionally. I don't like going to his office. I like going to the emergency room even less for reasons that I won't go into, right? I don't like the ER. I've been there a number of times. I've been there on a few occasions where I needed acute care, where there was something that I couldn't do. I couldn't just get over a gaping wound in my head. I needed stitches. Uh, I had a nasty concussion two years ago, coming up on February 14th. I had a nasty concussion. I needed some help. I've strained ligaments in my knees. I've torn my shoulder. I've done all kinds of things on the ice that, as a referee that hurt me that I needed some care for. Other times, I realized that I was losing the battle with a particularly nasty sinus infection. Ever since I've left New Mexico, I don't get those anymore. I'm thankful for that. Not as much dust here. And so sometimes I needed an antibiotic to help me get over a sinus infection. One time, I got the flu so bad, I was in university, I got the flu so bad, I got so violently ill that I ended up in hospital for the day with 2,000 milliliters of fluid being pumped into my body to try and get me back to kind of healthy. Another time I went to the doctor, shoulder was bothering me. I ended up in surgery. That made me like doctors even less. I thought it was just going to be some anti-inflammatories. No, we're going to cut you. Awesome. Why did I come here today? So what each of these examples has in common is that eventually I realized that I couldn't handle this on my own and I gave in and I went to the doctor, but I did so very reluctantly and extremely begrudgingly. I, don't, I have white coat syndrome. My blood pressure goes up 10 basis points when I see a lab coat, guaranteed. And although I don't like to admit it, usually when I go to the doctor, I'm thankful for the fact that I went. I'm thankful on the backside. I needed whatever they were able to do to help me. Maybe you went to the doctor recently. I saw mine on Friday. And in true Kirk fashion, there were five things on the list and it's been growing for months because I don't go easily. Maybe recently you were picked up by an ambulance because you had an acute medical experience and you needed help. Maybe it was life-threatening, maybe it wasn't. Maybe a car accident and the ambulance came and scooped you up. My guess is this, that when you had your first encounter with a medical professional, an EMT, a paramedic, a nurse, a doctor, my guess is one of the first things they did is they assessed your vital signs. 
My guess is that they probably took some check of your body systems like to evaluate your blood pressure, your heart rate, maybe your respiration rate. Maybe they even stuck that little pulse ox probe on your finger that all kids are afraid of because it's a red light and they associate red with Darth Vader and that must be bad. But it actually tells you how your oxygen saturation is and, and it's good, it's a good thing to know that. And the better that number is, the better you are, right? The closer it is to 100, the better the relationship between your respiration and your cardiovascular system. The point is, these little checks that doctors do, that, that paramedics do and others, they help provide a data sample that allows them to compare to what they know about other healthy bodies. So they take our numbers and they average it for certain things, our height, our weight, our age, even our gender, and they look at how we are healthy-wise relative to other people. It's a good thing to know. They're not always right. Well, just like healthy bodies generally report healthy vital signs, similarly, the body of Christ has the church, and, and even as individual Christians, we have vital signs that report on our spiritual health. And so the question is, do you know what they are? Do you know what some of the spiritual health vital signs are? I ask because in God's economy, I think that a diagnostic tool that, that would give indications of, of how we're doing at, say, growing in our own spiritual walk, our dependency upon God. I think that knowing that, how, how do we measure that? How do we quantify that? How do we understand that? That would be a good thing. Helping to grow the health of this church that we're committed to. What's our spiritual fervor for the church, for the body of Christ? And, and how do we help grow it? And how do we understand that? Thirdly, how do we measure, how do we understand the role we play in the lives of other people in helping nurture their spirituality and helping grow them and their dependency on Christ? Well, that's that's partly what Brent talked about last week when he talked to us about our roles within the church, that we all have a part to play, that we all have a role, that God has this uh, divine purpose for our lives. And while no church is perfect, no church is perfect, no fellowship of Christians is entirely healthy, right? None of us in the room would probably say we've arrived. I think we would at least, I think we would at least uh, reflect some degree, or I would hope we would reflect some degree of corporate health, and that together we're headed towards healthier than we were when we started this journey. When we started this journey with Jesus, hopefully we are healthier than we were. Hopefully we're healthier as a body of believers here at Southridge or wherever your church home is. Think about it. You wouldn't probably take your doctor's advice. You wouldn't go to the doctor, and if the doctor evaluated your blood pressure and it was high, uh, you wouldn't likely do what he or she had to say, unless you thought there was a benefit to doing so, right? So if you looked at a, at a check of your, your body's vital signs, and the doctor says, we got to get your blood pressure down, you probably wouldn't do anything about that unless you thought there was a benefit. So the same is true here. Take that one step further. Apply that to the church. Why even bother having standards or gauges or indicators of physical or spiritual health, for that matter, if not to strengthen us? So the question is then, does God provide us with these in Scripture? And I think that he does. And we're going to look today... Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, like I said. But first, I want to just kind of read to you last week where we left off from verse 11 to verse 12 in Ephesians 4. It says this. It says, he, it was he who gave some, Jesus, to be apostles, some to be prophets and some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Built up. That sounds like stronger to me. That sounds like healthier, maybe even better. The body of Christ would be built up. And that brings me almost to the text we're going to look at today. 
But before I get there, I want to give you this, this, this disclaimer, because I think we have a tendency, when we hear spiritual health, we start to think certain things. We start to evaluate our own spiritual health, the spiritual health of others, the spiritual health of churches, based on some parameters that we've established that maybe have nothing to do with what God's looking at. For example, I don't think, when we look at this today, he's not going to talk about the quality of our music worship. He's not going to talk about whether we use drums or not and how loud they are. Cole, you can relax, right? He's, he's not going to talk about the vibrancy of our children's ministry, He's not going to talk about that. He's not going to hammer us to be more invested in local missions and or global missions. He's not. These are areas where we may evaluate a church. We may look at some things that go on in the church and say, yeah, I think that has something to do with the spiritual health of the church. But Paul's not going there. His, his vital signs, the ones he's going to lay out, they fly a little higher. They, they're a little higher up. And they're an indicator of our spiritual maturity and how we, how we reflect what Paul calls this. He calls it this at the end of the verse that we're going to look at today. He says, they're an indicator of the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in us. And when we've attained it, he promises this in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. The first vital sign is about teaching. It's about doctrine. It's about the health of our teaching. And it's important because there are people in this world, and some of them claim to be, and I'm not going to judge, but they say they're a part of Christianity, and yet their doctrine, what they teach, is inconsistent, appears to be inconsistent with what Scripture says about who Jesus is, about why he came, and about what his purpose is and his plan is for this world and for our lives. And that's important because as his church, we live in this evil, dysfunctional world, right? Scripture calls Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Guess what? We live in the kingdom of the air. So we know that Satan's at work around us. And so even though we live in this dysfunctional world, it's important for us to know the Holy Spirit's voice, right? Have you ever had a moment where you sought God? Maybe it was this morning. I don't know what it was about this morning. It wasn't the notes. It wasn't the instrumentation. It wasn't Bailey leading. It wasn't that. It was, it was something God just kind of moved in the worship moment for me. Do we sense God's presence? Do we recognize the Holy Spirit's voice? And do we, when it comes to scripture in the text, do we accurately interpret what it's teaching? This was super important for the early church, for the first century Christians who read this letter or who had it read to them, because what they didn't have is they didn't have this. They didn't have this, right? You probably know that. They did not have this text bound in printed format, neatly compiled for them. They didn't have this. They had a series of letters. They had a set of teachings from the apostles. The apostles would gather and they would teach and they would instruct them in the ways of the Lord and in the scriptures and in the Old Testament. And they would read Paul's letters, but they didn't have this. They couldn't put it in their backpack. They couldn't take it to school with them. It wasn't in their purse. It wasn't on their smartphone. There was no Bible app, right? They didn't have it. And so what they had was teaching. So teaching was uber important to the early church, that the doctrine was healthy, that it was true, that it actually upheld what God was saying, because that's all they had. They couldn't take the text and break it down for themselves and analyze it and say, God, speak to me through your word today. We, we can read it for ourselves. We can gather around it like we are today. We can hear it explained. We can hear it taught. And then you can leave here and you can take God's word and you can take what I said and you can put it to the litmus test of God's word. You can evaluate it. Is it true? Did Kirk edify God? Did he speak truth? Or did he impart a whole lot of what he thinks? And so what happens is as the pastor teachers or the community group leaders or the Bible study teachers or even the children's workers and the youth workers upstairs, when they're working with our kids, when they impart God's word, it equips the church for a deeper knowledge of the Son of God, 
through a deeper understanding of the word of God. And they begin, we begin to grow in our spiritual understanding and, and our wisdom and the whole body, the whole church, the body of Christ is impacted toward maturity in Christ. No longer, as it says here, infants tossed back and forth, blown here and there by humanity's evil schemes. We are rooted, grounded, firmly planted in God's word. So the question is, are we engaging with the Bible? Are we taking what it says? Are we spending any time in it at all? Are we discerning it, chewing on it, praying about it, meditating on it, and applying it to our lives in a manner that is consistent with what Jesus taught? When we do, then we're moving towards the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, rooted in and changed by his word. And one of the ways his word affects us, when we start to chew on it and apply it to our lives, one of the ways his word affects us is vital sign number two. It begins to transform how we feel about other people, miraculously, somehow. And how we feel about those particularly who don't know Christ as Savior, right? People who live disobedient lives. How we feel about those in the body of Christ who are struggling in their faith. We, our feelings about that are different because God's word is impacting us in this way. And so as we watch them walk through difficulty or walk in unbelief, our hearts are drawn in love. Listen to this. Then, I'm going to read the first verse again. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. This is the crazy thing. And you've experienced it, likely. Proclaiming and teaching the truth of the gospel in love requires that we have a biblical definition of love whereby we can commit to seek God's best good for that person, regardless of how we feel about their personal decisions, regardless of the lifestyle choices they make that we don't support, can't agree with, regardless of the words they use to communicate their feelings, good, bad, otherwise, regardless of their faith condition or their lack of faith condition. Because other places in scripture like Romans 10 makes it clear that if we confess and believe, then we are saved. That's true. We can't expect, we can't, we cannot expect that people are going to come to faith if we don't convey that message and they don't hear his message of redemption and hope delivered in love. There's not too many people that berate people with the need to, re to come to repentance that are going to see fruit because it goes against what Jesus said. Jesus corrected, he rebuked, he called out, but he always did it in a redemptive way. He always called them to repentance. Even when he said things like, you den of vipers and you brood of liars, he always drew them back to God's word. He was for everyone, and so we need to be as well. Think about the last Valentine's card you received. It, it probably wouldn't matter what the words on the inside of the card said at all. It wouldn't matter the effort and the poetry and the symbolism and the emotive aspects of it. It wouldn't matter a bit if the person who gave it to you who loves you, thrust it into your chest and said, here's your stupid, fake holiday, Hallmark-created, socially mandated, guilt-sponsored greeting of how much I love you. <laughs> Have a nice day. Right? 
<laughs> Thanks, Bracton. Maybe, maybe that's how you feel about Valentine's Day. Maybe you think it's dumb. Maybe you think it's just corporate greed and it's, maybe that's how you feel. And that's fine. But if you want them to get the message of love that you have for them, I would suggest that you separate those feelings a good ways, right? Because if you don't, they're not going to get it. They're not going to get them. You're going to get it. You're not going to like it. You're going to get it. But they're not going to get the message of love, right? Makes sense. Contrast that with, with, say, 1 Corinthians 13, what some people call the love chapter. If you've heard it, Paul writes on love, what love is, what love is not. If you're familiar with it, then you'll recognize kind of the poetic emphasis and the importance of love as Paul elevates this one value in this text. Listen to this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love, right? Jesus says, Paul says, you got to love. It's got to be bathed in. It's got to be about. It's got to be principally in the verbiage of love. But here's the thing. Love without truth isn't the answer either. Love without truth is hollow and it's empty and it's actually not very loving. And so there's this difficult tension. I mean, think about it. Who among us as parents would look at our toddler playing in the middle of Fraser Highway and say, I love you, buddy. I hope you're having such a great time, right? Be careful, right? We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't think that that was a very loving message. There's a real danger here. And somehow we got to balance, I love you, buddy, with what are you doing in the middle of the highway? We wouldn't approach traffic safety that way with anybody, let alone with our own child. And we wouldn't allow someone to drown, or we shouldn't allow someone to drown in spiritual error either. We shouldn't allow somebody to continue on a path of sin that is ultimately going to destroy them. Rather, just like parenting takes correction delivered in love, something I could learn more about, uh, it, takes, it takes learning that tension. The same is true with God's truth. It has to be delivered in love in order to bring about repentance because otherwise it just brings about hardness of heart and people turn us off. It's about grace and truth and a balance between them. And John said this in chapter one of his gospel. He illustrates this grace-truth balance by pointing to Jesus. And he said, for the law was given through Moses. In other words, you were told what to do, what not to do, and how to do it. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's truth, but there's grace. There's grace, but it's in truth. And Jesus sets this example for us in John 13, 34. You'll know this verse. Love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. It's about love. So a healthy church and healthy Christians, we have healthy vital signs concerning doctrine, teaching, and we have a, a communicative balance um, in terms of how we deliver that message in love. Truth is balanced and delivered with grace. I remember when I was a new pastor, youth pastor was my first role in a church, and uh, I had virtually no ministry experience whatsoever. And in trying to do my job well, I, uh, I'd, I unintentionally alienated somebody who was, who was very heavily involved in the ministry and 
in our ministry and I hurt them badly and I had no clue I'd done it because I'm a dumb man. And uh, not realizing I'd hurt them, I noticed that something was up when they, I started catching wind of them working behind the scenes, kind of not directly opposed to me, but in ways that were causing the ship to turn in dire directions I didn't want to go. And so I knew something was going on. I wasn't sure what the source of it was. I thought it was just their disobedient problem, whatever. I'm not sure what I was thinking at the time. And eventually what happened is this person withdrew completely from the ministry altogether from helping at all, which was significant because this person was like for years, the whole family was heavily vested in student ministry. And all of a sudden, very short time into my tenure there, they were gone. Long story short, over a year later, we're on the same bus. We're coming back from a ministry event that was in Atlanta, Georgia, and we were in Alabama. We were near Mobile, Alabama, and we stopped at a place to eat lunch. And um, this, I was a leader on this trip. We had a whole bunch of students and college students with us, and this person was there as a participant, not as a leader, because they weren't supporting the ministry anymore, but there as a participant. And they came to me and they said, hey, can we talk over lunch? And I went, well, uh, yeah like really nervous about what was coming because we hadn't talked in a very long time. And uh, over the period of lunch, I learned how much I'd hurt them. I learned that uh, how, how badly, how, how significantly they'd been impacted by what I had done that I didn't realize I had done. And I learned how much they missed being involved in ministry. And I watched as this person told me the story of how I'd hurt them. I watched them cry, break out, like well up in tears and tell me, I really miss being involved and I really want to be involved and I want to find a way for us to get past this and work together because I believe in what we're doing. And, uh, and, and then they said this thing, which was powerful because I was actually the cause of the problem. They said, and I'm sorry for what I did to make this worse. And will you forgive me? Well, we're both crying at this point. And, uh, but what this person did well, they did two things well. They told me gently how they felt and how I'd impacted them. And they told me how they were wrong to handle it in the way they did. And they asked me to forgive them. And that was easy. And then I had to handle the whole ask for forgiveness piece because for the first time I realized what I'd done. And then it all made perfect sense. Not that they handled it. Well, I didn't say, oh, well, therefore, that's how you handled it. Awesome. Well, you're good. No, I went, oh, now I see. Now I see why, how we got here. And so as mature believers, we've got to display this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control thing. Well, we have to handle that well, because when we don't, things go amok. And so two years, or just a couple months later, I ended up hiring this person. They came in and they worked with me for two years in, in the student ministry. We worked well together. We never had another hiccup, not another problem at all. And, um, we moved past it. It was a crucial point in our relationship. And it's crucial for us that we look to build out of this, that we look to build relationship with people and we move towards building unity when we do. And so the question is, are we loving? Are we loving? Are we being patient? Are we showing kindness? Are we exercising sensitivity in how we talk to other people about their situation? Are we exercising sensitivity about their spiritual condition, about their need for Christ? Are we exercising sensitivity when we have to confront somebody about a sin issue or about how we've been wronged by them or they've been wronged by us? Are we showing compassion to those who are alienated from Christ? Is our heart's desire, listen to this, is our heart's desire to see them come to saving faith? Or is our heart's desire to win the fight? Is our heart's desire for them to know Christ? Is our heart's motive to build other people up? 
Is it to help them attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ like his word says he wants for all of us? Well, if we've been bathed in healthy teaching, healthy doctrine, and we've got a good understanding and we've experienced this communicating the truth in love, we've both done it and we've benefited from it, then we're well on our way to the third vital sign, which is Christ-like character. In the text, in Ephesians 4, second part of verse 15, let me read again the whole passage. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. We will grow up in all things into Christ. Notice that Paul includes himself here. He says, then we will no longer be infants. And he says, we will grow up in all things. He didn't exclude and just preach at, and so I won't do that to you today. I certainly need to grow up in all things to represent Christ. Paul knew that a healthy Christian and a healthy church body have to grow towards Christ's likeness. Submitting to his lordship, that's what this verse is getting at partly, is submitting to his lordship in all things, not just the areas of our lives where we're comfortable offering surrender and asking for change. That means that we don't disagree with God when he points something out to us. It means we don't try to argue against his word and what scripture teaches, and we don't violate it just because it's socially acceptable or politically correct. We remain true to his word. See, too often I think, I do. Too often I I justify my emotions. I excuse my thoughts. I dismiss my reactions in certain situations. And too often I think we, if we're not careful, if we're not growing up into him who is the head, that is Christ, too often we can fall victim to using our bodies in ways that don't bring honor and glory to him. Too often we can treat others or we can do our work in ways that don't honor God. Now, we could easily go back to what I said a minute ago when I, when I mentioned some of the fruit of the Spirit. We could easily jump off into Galatians 5 here, and we could easily examine Paul's list in the fruit of the Spirit um, and talk about how as mature believers, we ought to display these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We could easily do that. We could also contrast it with what he calls in that same chapter, the acts of the sinful nature. And we could contrast it and look at sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery and idolatry and witchcraft and discord and hatred and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition. We could do that. We could put those together and we could see the contrast between them. We could even go back to October 2nd when I preached on Romans 12 and we could talk about how the need to be transformed in in our thinking and renewed in our minds and centered in Christ. We could do that. We could do all that. But what I really think we need to do, what I really think we need to do, I think we just need to agree with God. I think we just need to agree with God when he, through his word or when he convicts our hearts, I think we need to agree with him that we aren't always living as mature believers, anchored in, centered in Christ, that that in whatever instance God shows up and speaks to us, whenever he talks to us about how he wants us to grow and how we're not there in a particular area, I think we just need to agree. And I think we need to honestly model ourselves off of the one who did agree, the one who always submitted, the one who always obeyed, the one who always honored his father, Jesus. I think we just need to do that. I think that would do it for us. And you would probably agree. And philosophically, that sounds easy. If we just agreed, if we just sought forgiveness, then we would probably grow up to resemble, even reflect Christ, our Savior. And so the question is this, are we, are we growing in Christ-like character? Not have we arrived, right? There's nobody here but us sinners saved by grace, right? 
Paul would say he was chief among them. I would say I'm in a close second, right? We're, we're sinners saved by grace. But are we, are we reflecting Christ-like character in every area of our lives? And if not, are we seeking to? Are we submitting to his lordship? When he says, don't do that, are we agreeing with who and how he's called us to be? If we are, then we're closer to attaining the full measure of Christ. The last vital sign is unity. And it's outlined in verse 16, and we'll get there in a minute. But if you think about your human body again, every part of our bodies performs a function, right? An independent, unique function. But some of these functions overlap. Some of them overlap with other functions of the body because multiple parts of our body collaborate in certain areas. They, there are multiple systems in our body that work to extract nutrition from food. There are multiple things going on in your body that help to deliver energy to your cells to help manage our weight. Our body actually has a weight that it would like to achieve, and there's a lot of things going on there. There's, there's balancing our body temperature, right? There's a lot of things that have, there's part of our brain, there's what we eat, the external environment. So many things come into play with balancing our temperature. Even ensuring enough rest, your circadian rhythms, your body telling itself, you're tired, go to sleep. There's so many systems that overlap here and line up with each other in order to deliver the common goal of maintaining the overall system's health. And when we start to ignore assign a system, then we put the body at risk and it has to compensate in other ways. And so it does things like raise blood pressure. And so it's why we talked about vital signs earlier when we talked about how medical staff, they look at these things in concert with one another together and they look for, is there a good analysis of here that indicates a healthy body or is something indicating there's a problem somewhere else? If my blood pressure is high, it's probably pointing out that something is going on elsewhere in my system. And it may be even manifesting in my, you know, I got a migraine. Well, your blood pressure is 196 over 200 or over 110. No wonder you've got a headache, right? So maybe it's showing up in another way. And it suggests that the body's not healthy. But when all the parts of the body are functioning in accordance with one another, when they're doing what they're supposed to do, maybe the body is not only healthy, maybe the body's actually growing healthier. And the same is true when, when there's unity in the church, in this church, in this body. When this body loves, it grows. When this body grows, it loves. And not just inwardly, it loves outwardly. It, it starts to this body, this church, this fellowship of believers here at Southridge. We, we get so saturated with love, we actually start to look for avenues to love others outside of here. And we become united in, in doctrine, in teaching. We're agreed on the, the majors that Jesus lived, that he died, that his life was sinless, that, that, he, that God accepted his death for our sin. We agree on the majors and we discuss the minors, the things that are different. But we, be, we actually become, when we, when we have unity around God's word, we actually become more effective in our mission because now we're not fighting about our mandate. We're not fighting about the text. Rick Warren, he's, he's written, you've maybe heard of him, he's a pastor at a very large church in California. He wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life years ago. He's written numerous books since, and he consistently says this to his flock and in his writing and in his public speaking, his teaching and his preaching. He consistently says this, simple, three words, we're better together. And he's right. It's true. We are better at affecting Christ's mission for and through his church. We're better together. Verse 16 gets quite specific in terms of how it addresses this, this unity issue. We're better together. Listen to this. Instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. We looked at that. And then it says, from him, 
Jesus, the whole body, you, me, Southridge, the body of Christ, the global church, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. There it is again, as each part does its work. Now, I want you to notice two things here in this. One, from him, the whole body joined and held together. From him, from Jesus, in Christ. Paul uses ligaments to describe it here. This joining to and through Christ. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul referred to Jesus as the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of the church. And he talked about as followers of Christ that we are individually fitted to Christ in his temple. And if you've ever seen a stonemason work, I've only ever seen it one time in my life. If you've ever watched a stonemason work, then you know that fitting stones involves the use of some tools and it involves removing some rough edges and shaping the places where the joint is going to be. And as the stonemason works, he gets rid of the rough spots so that this joining together is tight and so that it is strong and so that it cannot be shaken. And so we, as Christ's church, he calls us, Jesus calls us to tolerate one another in love while he works on us, in us, to smooth out the rough edges because he wants us to become a better, unified, joined, fit, held together for his mission of redemption for the world. Paul called it the ministry of reconciliation. We have this ministry of helping reconcile the world to Christ. We do it best when we're joined and held together in him. We're better together. The second thing of this I want to point out to you, it has to do with our unique functions of serving in the body. Paul noted that each part has to do its work. Pastor Brent talked about this last week. If my human body has a non-working aspect, and the older I get, the more of them I become aware of, uh, then I, I'm going to have some level of decreased or diminished capacity. I'm going to see that part not functioning well, affecting other areas of my life. And it's true in Christ's body as well, the church. It only works, this body only works when each part does its work, all while fostering love and forbearance, which is a fancy word meaning tolerance for each other's rough spots. And this is, this, this is so pivotal because damaged unity, damaged unity breaks apart fellowships. Damaged unity alienates believers from one another. Damaged unity allows the ruler of the kingdom of the air to come in and to lie and to divide. Damaged unity yields diminished fruit. Damaged unity means reach we don't have, souls we can't impact delayed salvation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that works. I do know this. God's given us a mission. He's called us to be unified. And he said, go reach people. Damaged unity doesn't help with that. Will he work in another way? He will. He will. God's plan, God's sovereignty, God's plan will come about. Will it come about through us? Will we be, be, will we be participants in it and blessed by it? Not if we have damaged unity. So what's the aim? Simple. Well, not really. Simply put, one of the goals of unity in the church is effective ministry. That's one of the goals of unity, effective ministry, that by his people here, us, his church, together for his glory, not our own, we're not looking to build our uh, notoriety and fame, for his glory, honoring Jesus, right, and his sacrifice, and benefiting those who don't yet know him as Savior. That's it. Ministry. Effective ministry. Question is, do we, do we have unity expressed through serving together? Do we have unity around the word? Do we have unity in our serving together, contributing to the growth of the body of Christ? I believe we do. I do. I really do. I think we have unity. I don't think we've arrived, 
right? We're not there yet, but I think we have unity, and I think that this church uh, is seeking to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I think we're working towards that, but I think unity is something we have to work on intentionally and press hard into because it can erode quickly, just like a riverbank. And so as the worship team starts to make their way back to the stage, I want you to consider this. I want you to think about our spiritual health, and I want you to think about spiritual vital signs. And I want you to ask yourself, do my spiritual vital signs consistently reflect that I'm growing in my knowledge and my understanding of his word, that I can accurately interpret it and apply it to my life, that he's going to be able to use it to affect transformational change in me because I'm applying it correctly? Is my ability to communicate the truth in love growing? Is it healthy? Is it yielding fruit? Or am I lobbing grenades into conversations and hurting people? Am I growing in my Christ-like character? Is it strong? Do I reflect my Savior? Do I look more like Jesus than I did when I started this journey? Am I pressing on to look more like him tomorrow and the day after? And are we, because of those things, are we unified? Am I unified with other believers? Am I unified with his church here? Am I unified with the mission of Christ's church in the world together for him? That's how the world sees, in spite of you and I, in spite of our imperfections, in spite of these broken vessels, that's how the world sees Jesus. That's how they see Jesus. And that brings us full circle all the way back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul urged us, live a life worthy of the calling we've received. It's so important, church, for us to live this out. It's so important for our spiritual checks to be healthy. A couple weeks ago, I talked about the check engine light. Same thing here. Our, check, our spiritual vital signs have to be healthy. It's how the world sees Jesus. By this, all men you will, know, will know you are my disciples, right? If you do what I told you to do. He told us to love. He told us to know his word. He told us to preach the truth in grace and in love. And he told us to be unified and to work together. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the day. Thank you for your church. Thank you for every life in this room. And God, there's conflict in every fellowship. And there is there's hurtful stories of the past. Um, there's damage that's been done. There are lives that are divided. And, and God, we know those things are not of you. And so your desire is for healing to affect. And so we pray for that today. We pray that our hearts would be in the place where we would seek fellowship with our brothers and sisters here, where we would look to be unified and joined for your kingdom, for your glory, on your mission. God, I pray for our teaching. I pray that when we dive into the word, that we are accurately interpreting and applying who you've called us to be that we love your word, that we revere it, that we look for it in our lives daily, that we make space for it, God, that we communicate it when we talk about it, that we talk about it in love and we talk about the thing you've done in us because nobody can argue with our story because you've moved in us, God, and you've given us a story to tell. So help us tell that in love and help it be the mechanism that draws people to Jesus, that we would communicate the truth in love, that we would be unified, that we would serve together in this body. And God, as we continue to try to do ministry well, God, would you breathe on it as we're obedient? And would we be aware of the things that we need to change where you're calling us to be more like your son, to be more like Christ? For it's in his name we pray.